0: Good morning, and again, a happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I am uh, thankful to be with you this morning, if only virtually. We are going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 21 this morning. And if you could, we are ready for the, uh, the title view graph. In 1 John, there are two criteria by which true membership in the community is determined. Believing in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, or confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the second is loving one another. These two texts are explicitly brought together in a couple verses of 1 John that we've already looked at, uh, chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, in God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. In this Sunday's passage from 1 John, uh, look for three big themes, uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, assurance of salvation, and loving one another. Spirit, assurance, and salvation. Regarding assurance, recall that John was writing this letter to a community of believers, but a community from whom one or more groups that we refer to as the secessionists had left because they did not believe the whole gospel. Thus, this is more a letter of encouragement to those who believed the whole gospel than a defense of the faith or, technically, an apologetic to those who did not. And looking at the whole letter, although this general tone of encouragement can be lost within its complex logic, it is going to be clearly present in today's passage. This passage shares some of the themes introduced by uh, Pastor Matt last Sunday in 1 John uh, verses 7 through 12 and elsewhere in the letter. God's perfect love for us through Jesus Christ our love for others that is still being perfected, and our assurance of salvation. These themes are developed throughout the whole letter. They are not confined to particular paragraphs, and they are interconnected. We will see an example of this as we study the Holy Spirit in verse 13. Will you then uh, follow the text as, as we read today's passage? Again, we're in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us, because he has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Word of God. So we have in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him, in him and us, because he has given us of his spirit. Just what does this verse actually mean? In particular, what does the phrase mean that he has given us of his spirit? One of the things that we're going to be seeing throughout uh, today's message, and in fact throughout uh, 1 John, is that uh, love is is more than something that we just feel inside our heart. It's more than compassion. It is it is something that we have to do. It is something that we have to act on. And so it might be reasonable to, to think that the fact that he has given us the spirit means that there has to be some some physical manifestation of the spirit, you know perhaps you know you know a charismatic lifestyle of some sort, perhaps even even in preaching in tongues however, and although I've read that in several commentaries. I believe this passage to be uh, quite a bit simpler than that. But to understand this, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how John uses the word spirit, both capitalized and in lowercase, throughout the gospel. Could we move to the second view graph, please? So what I've done here is, is I've traced the word spirit and spirit throughout the entire gospel. So, And I'm going to go through, move through this real quickly so that in verse uh, 324, where we first see the Holy Spirit, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, whom he has given us. Take note of the word know which I've put in italics, and the word spirit, which I've placed in boldface there. Of course, italics and boldface are not in the, in the original text. And then we're going to move through a couple other of these passages very quickly. Uh, verses four, 1 to 3, again, we've already covered these. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false If you look at this passage, you'll notice that the word confesses is in italics. And we we associate that uh, with the good spirit, the spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come. Uh, If we move real quickly to the the third view graph, we can see that the same trend continues in verses 4-6. Today's verse, verse 413, and also verses in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to look just at today's verse to move this along. Verse 413, by this we know that we abide in him, in him and us, because he has given us of his spirit. So, what do we learn from this? And every occurrence in 1 John, where the word Spirit is capitalized, as in the ESV, referring to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit confesses or testifies truth and enables us to know the truth. So what we're hearing in verse 13, then, importantly... This verse, therefore, teaches us that it is, in fact, the Holy Spirit that informs and assures us that we are abiding in Christ and that he is abiding in us. So it's the Holy Spirit in 1 John that is informing us of our assurance. It's not always simple. Because as you saw from the context of the entire book, there are spiritual people or people who may claim to be spiritual and they may be hearing spirits other than the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons why 1 John is so deep is it is teaching us to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit. Moving on, then, to verses 14 and 15, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God. There's an interesting phrase in verse 14, the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The phrase "Savior of the world" occurs only here, and in <clears throat> Chapter Four of John's Gospel. And Chapter Four, if you will recall, is the uh, is the the story where Jesus interacts with the uh, woman in Samaria at the well. And what happens is she hears all that Jesus said. She goes back to, to the town, the, the, the town of Sychar, where the, where the well was located. And she, and she ex- explains this to the people in the town. And then they understand, they recognized that, in fact, they actually used that same phrase. They said, yes. Jesus has to be the savior of the world. But you see, what they meant in that context was that Jesus was the savior of both Jews and the Samaritans. And in effect, that Jesus was the savior of both Jews and Gentiles. That phrase, however, can easily be misunderstood. We'll take a quick look at this before moving on to the next verse. If we were to take this verse out of context, one might read this as Jesus came and he is saving the whole world. But that, in fact, is not what this verse means. You know, clearly within the context of 1 John, uh, the secessionists did not even see Jesus as their savior. This was one of the things that was lacking in the, uh, in the incomplete or false gospel or counterfeit gospel even of the secessionists. Moving on then to verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and him in God. There's a challenge in this verse too. And, and the challenge is the phrase, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God and the reason why this is challenging uh, I've known people and I'm sure most of us have known people who uh, who don't attend church who don't uh, are not in fellowship with other Christians but say hey when I was when I was 12 and uh, You know, I I went with some of my school friends, and, and I confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's all done. I'm going to heaven. And that is not where this verse is going. And again, to understand that appropriately, we have to look at the whole context of the letter. And within the whole context of the letter, uh, Confessing that Jesus is the Son of God uh, is often combined with believing. So, confessing and believing link very closely throughout 1 John, and and the two of them weave together over and over and over again. For example, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God... uh, is, is found in chapter 2, verses uh, 22 and 23. It's found in uh, chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 And here. And then believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is found in verses 3, 23, 5, 5.5, 5.10, five, and 5.13. So we'll hear that over and over again as we move to chapter 5. So confessing and believing are very tightly linked in John's Gospel. And so confessing really suggests the lifestyle of a Christian's life rather than merely a confession that may occur at one point in time. Verse 16 then. So we have come to know and to believe that God has for us... Excuse me. So we have come to know and to believe... The love that God has for us God is love and whoever abides in God whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him this is the first time that we've it's actually it's second time that we've seen the phrase God is love we we saw that first time of uh, last Sunday in in first John verse 8 up uh, this does not mean of course as as Matt indicated last week that God and love are equivalent. What it means is that is that love is an attribute of God, indeed a very important attribute of God in one that is relevant here, but but God has many 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 other attributes, you know, for example, justice and mercy. So so to say that God is love, you know, one would never turn that backwards in in, in say love is God, and unfortunately, I've heard that phrase before, but it simply is is not an accurate statement. So, if I go back to verse eight, then anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. There are a couple negatives in verse eight. If we want to turn that verse around. It would be anyone who knows God loves one another. Loves one another. The one another part comes from the context of verse 7 in there. Anyone who knows God loves his brothers and his sisters. Anyone who knows God loves his neighbors because God is love. So there's, there's where we're going in that part of verse, verse 16. However... As we move from verse 8 to verse 16, something is added to the statement. Verse 16, is what it does is it adds the element of assurance. Because because we're told that if we love because God loves us, then he will abide in us and we will abide in him. So this, this is the first hint that we're really changing, changing the focus from more commands, more, uh, more encouragement, if you would. We're changing the focus from encouragement to assurance as we, as we move through verse 16. Moving on then to verse 17, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. The grammar in the ESV translation is a bit challenging in that verse, but there, but there are a couple key concepts here. The first is love is perfected. What do we mean by love being perfected? We've seen this before. Uh, we, we saw it in 1 John 2:5, uh, and uh, we also saw it in the final verse that, uh, that <clears throat> Pastor Matt taught last uh, Sunday, verse 12. Uh, it appears here. If you're following us this morning, and you don't have an ESV, if if you're using an NIV translation, instead of the phrase perfected, you may see the phrase made complete. What, What is happening is that when we become believers, one of the things that we are given is a new capacity to love. We're given the capacity to love in, in a godly way. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But we're given this capacity to love. And, and then we live our lives. And if you're like me, you don't love in a godly way every day. Or every hour of every day it's a process and so being perfected is this process of this gift of love this gift of godly love that we have received working itself out and playing itself out through our entire lives it's a process so Grammar is complicated here, but let's try paraphrasing this verse. Living in a manner that is increasingly like Jesus, characterized by love, will give us confidence, that is, assurance, for the day of judgment. Verse 18, as, as we continue to go step through this text carefully, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We see the word fear in this verse. There are several words for fear in Greek. Uh, The word that is used uh, several times, really three times in this verse, is, is phobos. And it can mean either dread, bad fear or awe or respect good fear depending upon the context, but here it refers in all three cases to the dread of divine punishment. But let me pause for just a minute and say that dread of divine punishment is not the same as fear or dread. Of death it's not the same you know you know our lives were given to us as gifts from God and 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 we are called to recognize that and we are called to live out our lives as God would have us live our lives so there is nothing wrong with not wanting to die. What we're specifically referring to in this verse is the dread of what will happen when we, after we die and we face judgment. So, what this verse is telling us is those who are being perfected in love, those who are being sanctified, if you will. Will not dread the day of punishment. I think we can enrich our understanding of this verse a little bit, like, for a little bit, by stepping outside of the writings of John specifically, and uh, look at the writings of Paul, and also look at a verse from Hebrews. And in Romans 8:15, we have another perspective on how the Holy Spirit provides us confidence. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And we do that right now. We are not slaves to fear. But then, there is a st- Significant sense in which dread, this bad kind of fear of judgment, is the opposite of faith, but that assurance aligns with faith. If we go to that famous phrase about faith in Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We see, we see how faith and assurance align, align there just so well. In verse 19, we read, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Number one. We are able to love God and others only because He first loved us. We did not invent love. Love is not something that that just starts inside of us. It, you know, it's it's something that we that we that we feel spontaneously when we when we see somebody that we that we want to be, and that, and that it is isolated between us in, in the object of our love. That, that is just the opposite of what this verse is saying. This verse is saying that our capacity to love in a godly way comes from God. Love started with God, period. We read earlier in, in 1 John, verses 3, 16, and 17, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And so this gives us a great picture of what godly love is looks like. The ultimate model is is Christ, who laid down our lives for us. And we are called to lay down our lives for our sisters and brothers. But in terms of the context here, this doesn't necessarily mean that we are called to die for our brothers and sisters, although there is a chance that you or I might be called to be a martyr. In general, what this verse means is we are called to act in a godly way in that love, which means to value that person more than we would value any kind of worldly possession, And so if we have something that that person needs, the way we lay down our love for that person is to share. Again, again, love is not just a matter of heart. It's not a matter of feeling. It's a matter of doing. Let's then move to the uh, the final verse, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. First, this points back to verse 7, and we're going we're to dwell on this verse for just a few minutes. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So you can see how tightly today's passage is linked with, uh, with last week's passage, and this is a characteristic of 1 John. But the tone is slightly different, however, between verse 7, which I just read, and verse 21 today. And here we are. Having laid the necessary foundation, John has moved from the encouragement that you heard in verse 7 to a command today. Nevertheless, verses 7 and 21 really bookend uh, this part of the letter very well. But I thought what we would do is we would dwell on this just a little bit and, and look at how love plays itself out through, uh, through the whole Bible. And so if we could, if we could turn to the fourth view graph, uh, and that view graph will be entitled, you know, since I'm not seeing him here, I'm going, to, I'm going to look at what I have here. <clears throat> These view graphs will be called the Great Commandments to Love, And we're going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to we're going to move through the entire Bible and we're going to see how this commandment to love evolves. And in particular, we're going to see what is unique about 1 John. So if we start off in the Old Testament text uh, in Leviticus, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then you get the second half of that, or as, as it plays out in the New Testament, the first half in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Let's move on to to the next view graph and see what this looks like then in the New Testament. If you look at the uh, the three Gospels, uh, the, the Synoptic Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get similar statements in all three Gospels. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read Mark's Gospel because you can see how he how the Shema is specifically isolated from, from the command to love our neighbors there. And this is from Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, o Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So th- those are the first three Gospels, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And as I indicated in the view graph, there are parallel passages, of course, in Matthew and, and Luke that sound very similar to this. Uh, the passage in Luke, interestingly, is encapsulated into one verse. Up, uh, That's Luke 10, 27 it is the it is the introductory episode that actually leads luke into the uh the parable of the good samaritan so it's in a very important place and we have a very great example in luke of of how uh godly love is acted out as first john is calling us to do <clears throat> moving then to the holy spirit in uh <clears throat> Okay, if we go to John chapter 13 and I'm not seeing the view graphs, which is why I'm I'm looking separately here. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, as we move to John's writings the commandment to love has some has an interesting twist the first is that Jesus has called this a new commandment and how can he call it a new commandment if it's if it's been throughout the whole bible in fact what i like to do is is to show that leviticus is right here and first john is right here so we've really bookended the entire Bible with this commandment to love, but what's new about it? What's new about it is that there is a linkage here. We no longer have two separate commands, love the Lord and love your neighbor, as we did before. We have a linkage here. Just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And then by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, it is the love of God which is primary, and from that we are called to love our brothers and sisters. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love, And there are additional passage in uh, John about the great commandment of love, as I've indicated there. Uh, <clears throat> however, let's now move to 1 John. If we move to this final verse of 1 John, and this commandment we hear from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother if you tease this out logically and i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it what we're saying is that or what john is saying is that if is that you love god if and only if you love one another <clears throat> what john has done between his gospel and the letter is he's bound the love of god logically in both directions with loving one another. And so we, we can see that the love of God is bound inseparably from our loving, our brothers and sisters. And in fact, as we come to know the Lord, this love that <coughs> started with God will play itself out in our lives in a way that will prepare us with assurance for the Day of Judgment. Let's turn to a few applications of this passage, and you can turn off the uh, the view graphs now. Number one, the the marks, there are really multiple marks, the marks of a Christian are faith in Jesus Christ and loving one another. Although the call to love one another frequently begins internally with compassion, it must lead externally to action or doing. It's not, love, godly love is not just a feeling. If you feel convicted that you are better at having faith in Jesus and loving Jesus than loving other human beings, maybe that sense of conviction is the Holy Spirit working in you. And, and I know I experience that daily. Number two, since our love for other people is our way of laying down our lives for them, it is fundamentally unselfish. Godly love is fundamentally unselfish. However, it is not a means to righteousness that we attempt on our own and frequently fail, as I do. The capacity to love unselfishly comes through Jesus Christ dwelling within us. It is not perfect but it is perfected throughout our lives. Love for one another is also frequently a source of personal joy for the one who loves. This is a gift from God. The personal joy that, we, that comes from godly love is a gift from God. Personal joy, however, is never the motivation for Christ-like love. Personal joy is never the motivation for Christ-like love. Number three, 1 John is addressed to a community of Christians. How we love one another within the church is a testimony to others outside the church. In fact, seeing love between people in the earliest Christian communities was one of the factors that powerfully propelled the church into the whole civilized world. In fact, one of the Latin fathers, uh, Tertullian, who lived uh, from about uh, 155 to uh, 222 A.D., wrote, Such a work of love, for so it is, puts a mark upon us in the eyes of some pagan non-believers. Look, they say. How they love one another, for they themselves hate one another. And how they are ready to die for one another, for they themselves will be ready to kill each other. And then the historian E.R. Dodds wrote, A Christian congregation was from the first a community in a much fuller sense than any corresponding group. Love of one's neighbor is not an exclusively Christian virtue. But in our period, that is the Roman Empire, the Christians appear to have practiced it much more effectively than any other group. Something to think about as we we work through our virtual LDC class on Acts of the Apostles, just the importance of love as a testimony uh, to uh, propelling the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sadly, there's a converse to this, and that is that the opposite of this is also true. The evil one, Satan, can and does use strife and disunity within a church to drive others outside the church away from Jesus. And we we pray that that won't happen here. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage in, in 1 John which we cannot read in and of itself. We thank you for the whole letter and in, in what you have taught. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your teachings about the Holy Spirit. We, we thank you for, uh, for your teachings of assurance. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the fact that you lovingly want us to be assured of our salvation, that, that a gift. Of knowing you in the person of your son Jesus Christ is is being assured in a positive way about the day of judgment and finally heaven Heavenly Father we we thank you for first and foremost the gift of your love which has played out through salvation history but most importantly in the life and death for us of your son Jesus Christ we Thank you for loving us first. And we thank you for teaching us how to love in godly ways. But we continue to pray, Heavenly Father, that this gift of love that you've given to us, each of us, through the Holy Spirit, that you will help us daily, that this love might be perfected as we live out our entire lives in you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.